With the sudden elastic adaptability of his nation, he turned to steady labour in his father's banking business, closing his ears to the sound of the battles of the street. In a few years, he came to control all the activity of the great firm whose unimpeached conservatism, safety and financial weight lifted it like a cliff above the angry sea of the markets. All mistrust founded on the performances of his youth had vanished. He was quite plainly a different man. How the change came about, none could with authority say. But there was a story of certain last words spoken by his father, whom alone he had respected and perhaps loved. He began to tower above the financial situation. Soon his name was current in the bourses of the world. One who spoke the name of Manderson called up a vision of all that was broad-based and firm in the vast wealth of the United States. He planned great combinations of capital, drew together and centralised industries of continental scope, financed with unerring judgement the large designs of state or of private enterprise. Many a time when he took hold to smash a strike or to federate the ownership of some great field of labour, he sent ruin upon a multitude of tiny homes. And if miners or steel workers or cattlemen defied him and invoked disorder, he could be more lawless and ruthless than they. But this was done in the pursuit of legitimate business ends. Tens of thousands of the poor might curse his name, but the financier and the speculator execrated him no more. He stretched a hand to protect or to manipulate the power of wealth in every corner of the country. Forcible, cold and unerring in all he did, he ministered to the national lust for magnitude, and a grateful country surnamed him the Colossus. But there was an aspect of Manderson in this later period that lay long unknown and unsuspected save by a few. His secretaries and lieutenants and certain of the associates of his bygone hurling time. This little circle knew that Manderson, the pillar of sound business and stability in the markets, had his hours of nostalgia for the lively times when the street had trembled at his name. It was, said one of them, as if Blackbeard had settled down as a decent merchant in Bristol on the spoils of the main. Now and then the pirate would glare suddenly out, the knife in his teeth and the sulphur matches sputtering in his hatband. During such spasms of reversion to type, a score of tempestuous raids upon the market had been planned on paper in the inner room of the offices of Manderson, Colfax and Company. But they were never carried out. Blackbeard would quell the mutiny of his old self within him and go soberly down to his counting-house, humming a stave or two of Spanish ladies, perhaps, under his breath. Manderson would allow himself the harmless satisfaction, as soon as the time for action had gone by, of pointing out to some Rupert of the markets a coup worth a million to the depredator might have been made. Seems to me, he would say almost wistfully, the street is getting to be a mighty dull place since I quit. By slow degrees, this amiable weakness of the Colossus became known to the business world, which exulted greatly in the knowledge. 
At the news of his death, panic went through the markets like a hurricane, for it came at a luckless time. Prices tottered and crashed like towers in an earthquake. For two days, Wall Street was a clamorous inferno of pale despair. All over the United States, wherever speculation had its devotees, went a waft of ruin, a plague of suicide. In Europe also, not a few took with their own hands lives that had become pitiably linked to the destiny of a financier whom most of them had never seen. In Paris, a well-known banker walked quietly out of the Bourse and fell dead upon the broad steps among the raving crowd of Jews, a file crushed in his hand. In Frankfurt, one leapt from the cathedral top, leaving a redder stain where he struck the red tower.